the point being, I want us to get a sense of how everything fits together. That's essentially the goal. All right, Sadid, go to the next slide. So I want you to uh, uh, think of this following set of shapes. So we have a diamond in the middle, okay, again. And then a circle around it, again. Another circle, keep on. Another one, and another one, and another one. And I believe, well, there might be one more. Okay, okay. So this is, this is what impressed you? Okay, so, so this is going to be our comprehensive layout of this thing that we call Islam. Press it again. So, when people from the outside often look at Islam into the inside, often the external sense, and it's kind of hard to read up here, is that people perceive of Islam as empire, or focused on empire, or focused on power. And then, next. And then from there, governance. So often when people are thinking of Islam, they're going to think of places like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, etc., etc. Again. Uh, what is often not in the external understanding of Islam uh, is this concept of justice. And then as you're going to see, as we get closer and closer to the center, you're going to get a better sense of how within Islam we understand Islam. So then we have movement. Yeah, keep going. Spirituality law, theology we'll talk about, and then, I didn't translate this last one, Iman. So, think of this diamond as being you, and in particular, your heart. And think of everything outside of the diamond designed to reinforce Iman, or faith, in your heart. Ideally, but we'll also explore the opposite. And so, hey, go back. <laughs> Give me yourself a lecture. Okay, so, so all these things are in theory there to preserve your iman, to help you grow your iman. Okay. And so, <clears throat> now you can go forward. Let's start with iman itself. Usually, when we translate the word iman, we translate it as faith. To give you a more precise translation, Iman is to have such a level of security that people feel secure in your company. Often when we speak of faith, we might make it synonymous with belief. And when we speak of belief, we often say in our society, this is something I take as true, but I can't really prove it. It has a very different paradigm than what we're speaking about here. We're speaking about your consciousness of security. And think of that in some ways, if I did not have security, how would I feel? How would you answer that question? If I'm lacking a sense of security. So I might feel unsafe. I might feel anxious. I might feel anxiety. So what is a consequence of having a relationship with Allah? It should increase your internal sense of feeling secure. Still means life is going to hit you. Life is going to hit you with all sorts of struggles and such but you still have some of what we might call equanimity, this consistent sense of security within yourself. And to have Iman, we're saying you reach a point where it's, you're so secure that people feel secure just by being in your company. So it radiates from you to other people. Yeah. But other 
Now think of these four as different parts of the diamond. So taqwa is the shield that will protect your iman. And so part of my goal as a believer over the course of my life is to increase my iman. And part of that process happens by way of increasing taqwa. And when we're saying taqwa is a shield, there's a conversation between two companions of the Prophet, may peace be upon him, may Allah be pleased with them, where one companion is asking another companion, okay, tell me what is taqwa? And some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this narration. And then we have two narrations. One is that suppose you have to walk through a forest and there's thorns everywhere. And all you have to protect yourself is a very thin sheet, a very thin shroud. So when you're walking through, you're bringing that close to yourself to protect yourself from all these things that could prick you. That act is taqwa. And then another narration in a similar conversation is, <clears throat> suppose you have to walk through this forest, and as you're walking, you're carefully looking at every step you're taking. So you don't get poked, you don't fall, you don't get hit, etc. That's taqwa. So when we're saying taqwa is to shield yourself, it means you're always on guard. So when we're, part of the reason I'm using this diamond uh, as a metaphor for iman, think of your iman as a jewel that you want to keep safe and protected, that you can lose. So that's taqwa. And one of the ways to grow your iman and to grow your taqwa is with ibadah. Ibadah being your acts of worship. So these are your daily prayers, this is the fasting, etc., uh, etc. Et the design of them is to bring you closer to Allah. So for example, a simple way to think about your five daily prayers, a lot of what we're going to be discussing is just how we perceive everything. You can think of your five daily prayers as a burden. i got to do wudu. And then i got to get up and i got to do this. And so forth and so on. And i got to dress this way or that way. Think of all the stress that you have going on throughout the day because of school, because of assignments. Maybe you have things going on in your personal life. Think of your prayers as a vacation from your day. That for these five minutes, I don't care what happens. This is just me and my focus is on God. I'm escaping everything five times a day. And so again, what is the point? The point of each of these acts of worship in theory, is to bring you closer to God. But as you and I know, I might be praying, I have no motivation, I have no concentration or anything. That would be material for a different lecture. But right now, I think of the idea. Uh, akhlaq is essentially character. In fact, it probably better put taqwa up here, ibadah here, akhlaq here. So you cannot be a good believer and have bad character. And what are, what are some of the essences of, bad, of good character? You speak the truth, that you don't lie. You keep your promises. You, when people trust you with secrets, you keep your trust. Now, one point to think about, as I'm going through all this, some of you are thinking, I'm the worst Muslim ever. I'm a horrible, horrible Muslim. That's not the goal here. The goal here is to think of a whole structure. And the, uh, the, your internal goal, if you're thinking about your own faith, think of it from the perspective not of how horrible you believe you are, but from the perspective that, OK, I want to be better. Because every single one of us in this room has space to become better. So don't get caught in the trap of just looking down on yourself based on the information we're sharing here. So these are some elements of character. But the point is that I might believe my iman is rising, but if I have nasty character, it's an illusion. 
Reda is something else that we often forget. I'll put that right here. This is to be pleased with what Allah Ta'ala is giving you. So <clears throat> I don't like that question, are you happy? Because that's more, I think, uh, uh, almost ephemeral. It's like just related to the moment. Like, mm, hold on. Mm, this makes me so happy. I think that's how happy this is. But are you pleased with the world that Allah Ta'ala has given you? Are you pleased with what Allah Ta'ala has given you? The ideal level, which takes a lot of effort to get to, is to be pleased not just with the good, but also with the bad too. Because the bad is also purified things. But the goal here, in preservation and development of Iman, is to get more and more pleased with Allah. And that, by definition, means Allah is more and more pleased with you. So this is the center. Now you'll notice, if you remember the, the original full circle, it's white in the center, and then as we get further and further from the center, it gets darker and darker. Because this is the primary location of light. It's in your heart. The primary place where you have your relationship with Allah Ta'ala, it is in the condition of your heart. Like I said, everything else is to help reinforce that. Okay, that's new. So now, we move out one circle. And the generic term here is theology. And think of, number one, aqidah. So about 100 years after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, there were a lot of people who were self-identifying as Muslim, but they had some certain significant problems in their belief. So this person, this early scholar, his name is Abu Hanifa, he started developing a science which he called al-fiqh al-akbar, which is like the big understanding. And in our language, it would be aqidah, which is simply what? That if I'm believing in Allah, then that means by consequence there's other things that I would be believing in. If I'm believing in Allah, the first thing is, of course, that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And then what else? The angels, the books, other revelations, other messengers, the day of judgment, so forth and so on. And then by extension, there's other things that are also be believing in, like, for example, the attributes of Allah. <coughs> as well as the fact that Allah is telling me to do things, and with my intention being to try to fulfill them. So that's basic aqidah. The word aqidah basically means to be tied in. That if I am saying that there's one God, and there's no God but this one God, what else ties me into this thing that we call Islam? Now if we look at a Sunni list versus a Shia list, most of it is the same. There's going to be some differences in terms of, of Shia imams and, and, and Sunni from a Sunni perspective of, of uh, companions and such, but the core of the list is essentially identical. When we get into other groups, then it might vary. But the point being that this is the first step of what? Keeping my iman straight. What to focus on. Now, <clears throat> there are times when there will be philosophical questions that will come up in different eras. And it becomes a challenge to someone's faith if someone doesn't have an answer. So for example, one of the big questions today is what's the relationship between faith and science? Or, in particular, what's the stance on evolution? And so, within the Islamic paradigm, that's actually not really a big deal. But because it's such a dominating question in our society, then naturally, as Muslims, then we start wondering about this as well. And so, kalam, sometimes we call it dialectical theology, this is basically our answers to other people's questions. And then there's usul ad-deen, 
which is a process of trying to illustrate how the whole structure of Islam is philosophically consistent. How does it all fit together philosophically? Yeah. Now, if you forget all these terms, that's not important. Yeah. Just try to remember the drawing. Yeah. And so we move from Iman to theology. And so what is theology essentially giving me? It's keeping my mind, my thinking straight, and then by extension, my intentions straight. That my intention overall is to what? Is to win the pleasure of Allah. My overall intention is to be ready for the day of judgment. This is all within the realm of Aqidah. Okay, next. Then we move out one further circle. <clears throat> and this is where most of us place our Islam in the question of law. So Islamic law, the most common term is Sharia. And so Sharia is what? It is basically, essentially, whatever the Prophet did. On a bookshelf, it's the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay. Now, you know, I always joke that you know the common Loyola undergrad has four letters that, that explain all of their Islam. Three M's and a J. Okay. What are the M's? Marriage. Okay, medicine, med school. Meat consumption. And what's J? Gems, right? Okay. So for so many of us, is my meat halal? Is my meat zabiha? That's almost like the most biggest existential question for, for many of us. But everything big or small, right? Am I supposed to dress this way? Am I allowed to say this? Am I allowed to eat that? Am I allowed to drink that? Yeah, all those am I allowed to questions are in the realm of law. Fiqh is the process of interpreting the Sharia. So one of the immediate questions will be, okay, the Prophet is in Mecca and Medina, that's 1400 years ago, I'm in Chicago 2019, it's different time, different place. Yeah, this was, a, this was already an understanding for the first generation of Muslims, that even when the Prophet died, peace be upon him, already they realized, okay, the situation has changed. And so throughout the whole history of our tradition, that's always been a question, time and place. And so fiqh is the process of understanding what is in the Sharia and figuring out how to make it wholly Islamic in our time and place and wholly native to the time and place that we're living in. And the general principle was acts of worship, they don't change. But other things like interaction, finance, all that stuff will change from time to place. And so the way we practice Islam in Chicago in 2019 might have very serious differences if we compare that with Islam in Karachi in 2019 as well, okay. uh, in a different part of the world. Acts of worship still be the same, but everything else in life, act of worship is your, your daily prayers, your fasting, you know, Hajj is gonna be in, in Mecca and such, um, your zakat is uh, also going to vary. The amount you have to give is consistent in terms of percentages, but we're in a cash society. Back then they had gold and silver and they used to trade uh, in a barter system. So even that part changes. So, fit is the process of trying to make sense of all that. But, I'm suggesting to you to think about it, most of us, when we even imagine the Quran, we imagine it as a book of rules. And it's not. So we have 6,000 some ayahs, 6,000 some verses. Someone give me either a number of ayahs or a percentage. How much of the Quran is actually rules? Someone throw out a number. Five. Five ayahs? Five percent? Yeah, it's about five or ten percent are rules, meaning 90% of the Quran is not rules. Most of the Quran is actually focused on your thinking. How do you perceive yourself? How do you perceive God? How do you perceive how life operates? 
That's the overwhelming majority of the patents. So a lot of times, people read the Quran, they feel like, okay, I'm not getting anything out of this. Because a lot of times people are looking for rules. And there are rules there, but very, very, very few. In contrast to how we imagine it. But what is the essential goal? The goal is, again, to facilitate my relationship with Allah Ta'ala. Next. Then we have spirituality. And so this is commonly known by a couple of different terms. Hafiqa. Hafiqa meaning reality. And then the Sufis. So people who usually don't know anything about Islam, who are within the Muslim realm, will think, okay, the Sufis are all these innovators, they do everything wrong. Okay, that's usually a sign of someone who doesn't know anything about the Sufis. But a term that everyone is often satisfied or good with is Ihsan, perfection of faith. That's essentially what all of these are referring to. Uh, Irfan you find more in Shia tradition which relates more to knowledge of God, knowledge of reality. And does he have, does he has purification? That helps us understand the whole thing. The idea being that <clears throat> there's something inside of me that's preventing me from becoming a better and better Muslim. I'm trying to, I know I want to, but for whatever reason I can't. Maybe it's the circle of people that I hang out with. Maybe I experience some trauma. Maybe I don't understand something. And so the process of tazkiyah, purification, is sort of like a spiritual version of psychology, going to a therapist. Because I'm going to a therapist because, you know, there's something not right in me, it might be a mental health issue, it might be a behavioral issue, and the counselor is helping me figure out what it is by way of certain exercises with the hope that I become more and more healthy within myself, more and more healthy socially. So this is to become more and more healthy in your relationship with Allah, which then means, by extension, more healthy in everything else, too. So a lot of the work that happens in my office is this. So I had a funny case today where I was working with a student, and we were working on exercises for her in terms of her prayers. So we said, all right, this is what you're consistent at. Why don't you make your goal okay, to pray Isha at 10 o'clock, as opposed to delaying and delaying it. And then she says, well, what am I going to get out of this? So I started laughing, making fun of her. Part of the point is to help develop your relationship with Allah Ta'ala. Okay. Okay, next. Now we're moving from the individual to the collective. Okay. This is something that I recommend everyone to try to consider to be part of. That we are prescribed to be part of a collective. So not just the ummah itself, not just the whole Muslim world itself, but be part of a group of people who are collectively trying to develop a relationship with Allah. You can call it a movement, you can call it an organization. Technically, in a way, that's what MSA is. So then think about your life, if you are active in MSA, think about your life beyond, beyond uh, MSA life. And so, in the 20th century, there are a lot of movements that grew that were focused on social justice. In the 21st century, uh, a lot of movements started growing, focused on inter interaction between Muslim and non-Muslim and stuff. If we were to speak before that, these were Sufi tariqah, Sufi networks. If we were to speak before that, it was very much the age of Muslim empires and such. But the point being that this is also a major part of our history, and if we look at Muslims throughout the world, a huge percentage of Muslims are part of some sort of movement is being a party. 
Uh, but we'll also notice, as we get further from the center, the realm starts getting darker, because we'll talk about the pitfalls of each of these things. But one of the most common goals of the movement, which is synonymous for many movements getting closer to a left life, is to focus on justice. So one thing that's great about your generation, mashallah, much more than my generation when we were in college, is not just a focus on justice, not just a concern with justice, but actually doing things about it. So like last week, there was the whole protest uh, related to climate change and, and everything. But the challenge here is to figure out what is your goal and how do you define what your goal is? Is your goal equality of everybody? Is your goal fulfillment of everybody? Uh, that, in many of our movements, gets often lost. Okay. And challenge yourself with it. Sometimes the goal is a liberation of a particular population. So let's say Palestinians from occupation. Or it may be in the case of Syria, it was to remove the oppressor. Okay. Uh, or in America, it could be something like Black Lives Matter. But the goal here we're saying is you want to connect it with your relationship with Allah as a way to develop your Iman. Now, it doesn't mean that all the groups that I mentioned do not have that. I'm saying that it's also easy to lose sight of those things. And, and so the common terms are Adala and Fist. So Adala is more equanimity or equilibrium, making things equal in terms of resources and such. Fist, small point, we can discuss it later, is putting everything in the proper place. Saying part of the idea of justice is that when you have disharmony, you're putting society back into harmony especially in a couple regions of life. Uh, shelter and sustenance, trade and travel, security from fear, protection of religious devotion. What am I saying? That in a lot of the discourse of justice in our tradition, those four arenas of life. Shelter and sustenance, trade and travel, uh, security from fear, and protection of religious devotion. This is an obligation we have for everybody in society, not just the Muslims in society. This is a Muslim obligation for the entire society. Okay, then we move further out. And so this gets into Muslim majority governments. So <clears throat> I'm not part of any government. I mean, we are part of a democracy, so in a way, we are part of the American government. Okay. Uh, but there is the question of rule. Now, there are a lot of, I said, a lot of the 20th century movements focused on justice and such. And they focused, they gave uh, extra emphasis on establishing an Islamic state, which was an idea that actually started in the 1800s. I mean, it's not a 1,400-year-old idea, because the idea of the nation state is itself very, very young. But the dream was to have a Muslim polity. And that did lead to some successes, at least in terms of establishing things. So we're talking about uh, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, whether those states, for example, are successes in themselves, that's a different conversation. But this is also a big aspect of the experience of Islam in the world today. Because we have, what, we take 40 Muslim-majority countries. And India itself, even though it's a Muslim minority, has had uh, a long history of Muslims either in imperial rule, or in monarchies, or in the current government. Oh, this is the lights. It's I thought it was the design. Yeah, I thought it was, it was the, I don't remember this on the screen. Okay. <laughs> so Hukum relates especially to judgment and such. Imara is, for example, we say the United Arab Emirates. There it's more the idea of Muslim rule, but rule by Muslims, and this is more judgment by Muslims. Okay. And then the last big one, 
is empire. This is where we get into language like the term Khilafah. So this is where we perhaps today put ISIS. So ISIS isn't, doesn't just only have the ambitions to have a Muslim government, the ambitions are global dominance. But this is also part of our history. Like usually when we speak to a common Muslim, the, when we speak of history, we might know the story of the Prophet, peace be upon him, with focus maybe on 20 bullet points of events. You know, he's in the cave when he received the first revelation, uh, the various conversions, uh, the night journey, hijrah, so forth and so on. So, and, and then we might know a little bit about the next 30 years. And we might know a few bullet points uh, again after that. So for example, uh, we're in the Muharram, and so we had Ashura a couple of weeks ago, so we might know about the martyrdom of Hussein. You might know a couple other empires, but for the most part, for the common Muslim growing up in America, usually it's an empty space. Because we don't focus on all that. But what you might not know is that Muslim empires were superpowers for almost the entirety of the past 1400 years, or give or take at least the first 1200 years. And there were periods where the Crusades were taking place and the Mongol conquests were taking place, yet in other, and Muslim uh, governance was getting wiped out, yet it was still uh, lively in other parts of the world. And then with the period of colonization, then, then essentially the European nations sort of had dominance over everything. The idea of Khilafah is not to have a Muslim empire. It is to have a society where the whole structure is being the deputies of God on earth. With all of those things close moving from the outer end into the center. So these are the big realms. Next. So once again, empire, governance, justice, movement, spirituality, law, theology, iman. Again. And then some of our terms, Khilafa, Imara, Adala, Jama'a, Tazkiya, Sharia, Aqida, and then Iman. Now let's take it a step further. What if you have a Khilafa without Iman? What do you have a khilafa? What if you have this whole imperial structure, but you don't have connection with God at the heart of it? How would you describe that environment? Yeah, it'd be something very, very fascist and oppressive. Let's take it further. Next. What if you have governance without Iman? Potentially the same thing. Uh, it is possible, obviously, to have a government that is just, that is not Islam. But if you have a government that is claiming to be an Islamic government, and Iman is not at the center, then more than likely it is probably an oppressive state. So I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, in the structure of the Iranian government, it's what we call velayat-e so it's rule by the jurists. That's the first time in Islamic history that they have something like that, where the legal scholars are the rulers. It would be sort of like saying the Supreme Court is the primary authority in society. You know, like in America, we have the judiciary, we have the executive, we have the legislative. Imagine the legislative and judiciary are beneath the Supreme Court. So, uh, that's a, a new thing in, in our history. So, uh, we have what's happening in Turkey right now. Right, Turkey, we have a state in which the, the leader uh, is presenting himself as very, very religious, but then you have all of this witch hunt of the followers of Gulen. So, okay, let's go bring it closer. Justice without Iman. What about this? What do you think? 
Mm -hmm. So this is one of the concerns today. Yes, Allah. Would there also be justice determining Yeah, I think both of these are 100% correct. That uh, uh, we then determine what is just and unjust according to something else. So justice, the definition of justice is almost always gonna come from some source. So we could say some ideological source, whether it's a religion or secular philosophy or what have you. And, and so the concern might be that that which I am calling just might still be unfair to some people. So what is the common notion in our society today? We have a lot of discourse about power and privilege, right? And so you have white privilege, you have male privilege, you have, you have Christian privilege, so far and so on. But what may happen is that if you're looking at a white male and an African-American female, we might defer and think the African-American female is the oppressed and the white male is the oppressor meaning we might indict someone who might not actually be an oppressor. So, might be a beneficiary of white supremacist system, but that person may not be an oppressor. And again, we're speaking all here in terms of, of ideals. Jama'a, so this is a, another common issue. So I might be part of a movement, and we might even believe our goal is to, is through the work together to bring ourselves closer to Allah, but I might fall into something else. I might fall into hero worship, like here's my leader, and I love my leader, and my leader is so special compared to everybody else. Okay. Or there's something better about us, and everybody else is misguided. Okay. Or uh, what is the risk of an MSA? And you know, mashallah, this is you know the, your your sure is doing a really good job. Is that we just have events for the sake of having events? Okay, we're the MSA, we got money, okay, let's just have events. Like it loses its mission. Okay, bring it closer. Sufis without Iman is very much like having a Jama'ah without Iman. So part of the reason when we hear about Sufis, we think negative, 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 that's because there are some people that are goofy Sufis. Okay. <laughs> so you have the orthodox Sufis, okay, who will often start with Sharia as the foundation and then develop this uh, spirituality from there. But then you'll have other groups that do all kinds of develop it. And, and so that's essentially faithless, yet it looks and feels like spirituality. I'm bringing closer to home. Again, the concern for most of us, so I said the concern for, for the most common question for Muslims is, am I allowed to? Okay. That's in the realm of law, that's in the realm of action. But what often happens is that I just try to fulfill whatever I'm supposed to, because I'm supposed to. Okay. And point is to facilitate my relationship with Allah Ta'ala. So what would happen, three people, three separate people come to my office, each with the same question. And let's say something like, okay, uh, uh, all the people I hang out with uh, drink, and I drink, and I know I'm not supposed to, but I can't stop, what do I do? But for each of those three people, I might give them three different answers. They already know they're not supposed to drink. Question is for that particular person, what is the proper answer? And this is what we also see, believe it or not, in the story of the Prophet peace be upon him. We have we have some hadith narrations that we call ahad or shab hadith, which is one person is or one group is coming specifically with questions, and the Prophet peace be upon him gives that person different answers than he actually does for everybody else. So this becomes to really think about this. Go back one. So we had the Sufis, and I go back to this Sharia. Think of a river, okay? 
And the Sharia is the banks of the river. It keeps the water flowing in the right direction. And the spirituality is the actual water itself. And you need both. If I have law without the water, then I have an empty ditch. And that's basically how law feels for most of us. Islamic law feels like, it just feels like empty rules. Why do I have to do this? It's just because you're happy. But if you have spirituality without guidance, then it's the equivalent of me pouring water on your table. Which way is it going to go? It's whichever way the gravity is taking, whichever the, the wind is going. But now the last question. Or the next is the last question. Aqidah without Iman, this is, this is getting a little bit more abstract. This is basically where you start excluding people because of your perceived belief about yourself or about them. Yeah. Yeah. Islam is uh, far more inclusive than we might realize, but there are boundaries. But a lot of times we might exclude other people and give them very nasty labels like hypocrites or disbelievers and such, yet their belief from an Islamic perspective might be completely legitimate. And that often happens when we turn all these things into something triumphalist, like we want to dominate. Okay, but this is more of an abstract thing. But what about the last one? What about Iman that has no Iman? Okay. Meaning, in my heart, I don't have any uh, aspirations of getting closer to the law. <coughs> I don't have any aspirations of improving myself then uh, your Islam becomes essentially an identity. And that, I would suggest, nationally, is the dominant form of Islam right now, where the whole focus is on the Muslim identity, as opposed to getting closer to Allah Ta'ala. Okay. I think that we went done, so let's see what else we got. So here's our big picture again. If all you remember is this, with the brightest white, the brightest light in the center, and then we move out, it gets potentially darker, then that's sufficient for this. And then one more. Okay, now you wanna see something cool? Dun, 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 dun. Anyway. Sorry, what did you say? Cute. I just gave you an Islam. This is the cover. All right, and I think we're done. Let's see if there's anything else. Um, we can break from others, and then we'll come back and do question answer. Okay. Sounds good, inshallah. Where are we doing the break? Uh, we can move the chairs back here. We will just steal another room. We knew that. So uh, let's pray in about five minutes. Tell us anybody who needs to do wudu, please do wudu. And there are still more shakes. Uh -huh. You got to wait till the Q and A. <laughs> oh, you have to leave. Okay, what's your question? <laughs> Technically, none of those are sins, but they're pathways where it becomes easier to sin. Yeah. You are correct. Yeah. That's actually a very important question. I mean, I'll see for the Q&A and ask Yeah, it sounds good, inshallah. Yeah.